I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. The role of House Speaker is cited in our Constitution, but the Senate Majority Leader is a relatively recent position. On this episode, former U.S. Senate aide James Walner, who teaches Congress at American University, joins us to talk about significant Senate Majority Leaders throughout history. There's a lot of equality in the Senate. I mean, any, most of what we do is on unanimous consent. That means that any one of the hundred of us could object <laughs> and throw the place into a stupor. So every senator has some real clout. The majority leader has a little more clout in the ability to set the agenda and to be recognized first, which gives you some tactical advantages. Uh, but the House, I always say, is sort of like a pyramid. At the top, you have the speaker. The Senate's more like a level playing field with the majority leader having a little more advantage than anyone else. But, you know, a strong-willed senator can frequently get his way simply by objecting. James Walner, you study the Senate, and in that clip and that interview that Senator McConnell did with us, he somewhat downplays the leader's role. (laughs) But I've read some of your writing, and you say that, in fact, party leaders are more powerful today than they have been at any time in the Senate's history. Why is that? Absolutely. It's it's incredible. We take leadership for granted today. We think that the leaders are the most powerful, most essential members in the United States Senate, and that if we didn't have them, the Senate couldn't function. And to be honest, that's probably correct, given how the members, the rank-and-file senators, approach their job. What uh, Majority Leader McConnell left out from his statement just there was that there's a lot of stuff that goes into structuring the process to when you do ask unanimous consent. And if a senator objects, it's yes, that senator can object, but the majority leader can make it really, really, really difficult for that senator to actually object. You wrote in the same piece that I referenced that rank-and-file members, despite their clear frustration with the status quo, (laughs) cannot imagine the Senate working without the active involvement of their leaders. I want to spend a few minutes on that clear frustration part and understand that. Uh, Last week, uh, 70 former United States senators signed an op-ed piece that ran in the Washington Post that said, essentially, the Senate is dysfunctional and really point the fingers at the leaders. You responded to that with disagreement. So what's your case on how the Senate works and what the cause is? Well, I think the leaders have a big part of the responsibility, and they help create the environment. But ultimately, it's the rank-and-file senators. The Senate's broken because the senators broke it. That letter was very interesting because approximately 40 percent, by my count, of the senators who signed it, the former senators, had served inside the Senate as senators over the last two decades, the period of time in which the Senate began to kind of unravel, if you will, or the dysfunction increased. And they didn't act in ways at that time to reverse that trajectory. And now they're writing a letter. And if you read the letter and you read between the lines, it's, it's very passive. It's, it's that there's a mysterious force out there that's somehow preventing senators from doing things, preventing the committees from working. And then even at the end, as I was reading the letter, I thought it was aimed at the leaders. But at the very end, they say, we want to make clear that this isn't a critique of of, of Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, or Mitch McConnell, the majority leader's uh, leadership tenure. We're not critiquing what they're doing. And so it's not the committees, it's not the rank and file, and it's not the leaders. Well, who does that leave? Who's broken the Senate? In what ways is it broken? Well, 
Today, we often think of the Senate as a factory. We think that its job is to produce legislative widgets. And look, the Senate is certainly supposed to pass legislation. That's a big part of it. But how it passes legislation matters. And there's a whole deliberative side of things. The Senate is a crucible of conflict. It's a place where Americans see their claims adjudicated, whether they're on the majority side of his debate or the minority side of the debate. And I think that the Senate today is broken because it's no longer serving that role. It's no longer deliberating. And ironically, if you look at it, once we begin to see the Senate as a factory, it becomes even less productive. So now we think the Senate's job is to produce legislative widgets, and it doesn't even make those anymore. We're going to look at not only the current Senate, but look back over the past 60, 70 years and help people understand the path that it took to get to where it is today. But before we do that, would you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the Senate and its functions? Well, I worked in the Senate for, for over a decade. I loved the place dearly. I wept like a baby my last day in the Senate. I, I probably shouldn't say that on television, but it's a fabulous institution. And even on its worst day, it's still a fabulous institution. And I worked there for a while. While I was there, I got my PhD in political science, and I studied the Senate. I've written books on the Senate. And now I'm at the R Street Institute, where I am a senior fellow that spends a lot of my time thinking about the Senate and thinking about how it works and how it doesn't work. And I teach classes at American University um, on, on Congress, on the parties, on interest groups, and generally on politics and how our system is supposed to work and how it works today. What's the R Street Institute? So the R Street Institute is a think tank, a public policy organization and here in Washington, D.C., that focuses on ways to, to really cut through everything and focus on how we identify solutions for problems that we have today. Right? It's, not, it's not dogmatic. It's not doctrinaire. It's like, what are the real solutions that we can identify to help fix, um, con or fix the government and fix politics? And a big part of it is the governance project, which looks at how to fix Congress. It really is a big focus of the R Street Institute. And how can we make Congress great again, as we like to say, after 2016? We're going to use a couple of Senate-specific terms mm -hmm. during this time, so I'd like to have you explain what they are. First of all, we heard about unanimous consent. What is mm -hmm. that? So unanimous consent is when the Senate decides not to follow its rules, and that's all the time. The Senate never follows its rules. And you have rules, and if you break the rules, any senator can stand up and make a point of order. So to not follow the rules, you say, I would like unanimous consent that we not follow this rule. And then once that's propounded, that point of order no longer lies against what the Senate wants to do. It's a shortcut, if you will. And the leaders play a very important role in that process. And explain the filibuster as it stands today. So the filibuster from Mr. Smith goes to Washington in our mind. We picture that, you know, that iconic scene where you have an exhausted senator who's who hasn't shaved in a while, who's got you know, all these letters in front of him. And that's not what we see today. The filibuster technically today is basically voting against cloture voting against cloture, which is a motion, a special rule that we have to end debate over a senator's objections. Unlike in the House, where a simple majority can do that whenever they want, in the Senate, you can't do that. The presiding officer can't call the vote on something as long as a senator is speaking or seeking recognition to speak. And so we call a filibuster today when you oppose cloture. But it's in, in lore, it's, it's when you stand up and you speak and you try to stop a bill. And what's the magic number for ending a filibuster? So today it's three-fifths of the Senate duly chosen and sworn. So that's typically going to be 60 if 100 senators are, are, have 
hold office. And, but if you have a motion to, or a proposal to change the Senate's rules, it's going to be two-thirds of senators uh, present voting, which is uh, basically however many people are on the floor at that moment. And it could be, if all 100 are there, up to 67. In that letter, the former senators wrote, they point to the overuse of the filibuster <laughs> as one of the things that's broken about the Senate. I want to show you a clip from January of 1995. This is a longtime and late Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, Democrat, uh, who talks about the, the rules and the use of the filibuster. Let's watch. Howard Baker and I, both working together, propounded some points of order. And we broke that filibuster. And I disposed of more than 30 amendments within the course of a few minutes. And the filibuster was broken. Back, neck, legs, arms. It went away in two hours. And again, I say I understand that, that, that the rule has been abused. I understand that senators don't really very often stand up and debate anymore. But let's don't try to blame it on the rules. Blame it on senators. What's your reaction? I think he's absolutely correct. And if I... if, if I don't know exactly the bill to which he was referring when he was leader, but Byrd would do things uh, like make a motion to suspend the rules and, and for purposes of tabling all of these amendments at once, like 30 amendments. Typically, you can only do that with one amendment, but he would use the rules in creative ways to dispose of obstruction and to overcome obstruction. But what he's referencing here is that it takes effort. It takes an, an, a desire to win. It takes someone on the floor who's willing to use every tool that they have at their disposal to overcome obstruction. And today, and, and relating to how I described the filibuster, you basically find out a senator somewhere is going to object to a unanimous consent request, which is to get rid of those rules, and you say, well, we can't do anything. And then we point to cloture motions and cloture votes as if that's a reliable uh, count of filibusters, when in reality, that's simply a vote to end debate. And if the cloture rule, which came about in the beginning of the 20th century, it was designed to empower the majority. It allows the majority to set the schedule and to call votes. It allows the majority to do a whole host of things. And so it's not entirely you know, clear just from cloture motions that that's what's happening. But Bird's right. You're making, it's, it's easier now than it was then. And when it's easier, you're going to have more of it. That was a debate all the way back in 1995 mm -hmm. to change the rules on the number of senators it took to end a debate, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously failed. But uh, subsequent majority leaders continued to be frustrated with the filibuster. So uh, Harry Reid, when he led the Senate, first invoked what was called the nuclear option, and then Mitch McConnell later extended that. So would you explain what those leaders were trying to do by curtailing the use mm -hmm. of the filibuster as they did? So Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution gives the Senate the power to determine its rules of proceedings. And because a simple majority of the Senate can, can set whatever rules it wants, it can basically negate or circumvent or ignore or overcome or just set aside the rules whenever it wants. So that's, tech, that's, that's what we call the, uh, the nuclear option. When you have a minority that says we're going to use the rules that we have 
to to block you. And that majority says, well, we're going to use our constitutional power to ignore those rules, to break those rules, or to circumvent them, or even change them, to overcome your filibuster. That's the nuclear option. It was really it was first attempted um, in recent decades by Republicans in 2004 and 5. It didn't work. It was then successfully used by Democrats in 2013. It's since been used by Republicans in 2017. In 2019, so it's it's really the a way in which um, majorities, when they get truly frustrated, can just overcome the obstruction and make something happen. I've frequently quoted Senator Byrd, uh, who has said, "If you know the rules, you can control the outcome." Mm-hmm. Are there any real rules tacticians in today's Senate? It's hard because we think about the rules differently. One of the things that you hear a lot is that we make decisions, and by we, I'm just referring to the Senate, but the Senate makes decisions behind closed doors, in the leader suite, in private negotiations. And when all of the process is playing out in that environment, the rules don't mean as much because they don't govern those deliberations as they do deliberations in a public, more formal setting like on the Senate floor or in committee. So you begin to look at them differently. And then when you think of the Senate as a factory, that makes widgets, you begin to conceive of your job as a senator as assembling uh, um, those widgets on the floor according to a blueprint that's been designed elsewhere. And so all of a sudden the rules become means to an end. And that then kind of eliminates their ability to really serve as a, as a, as a, as a powerful weapon for you because if the majority could just get rid of them whenever they want. They're no longer kind of islands of predictability, if you will, um, for senators to know what's going to happen in the future because the majority can just wipe them away whenever they want. So we're going to spend some time looking at some of the past, uh, recent past, powerful majority leaders and their, their foils on the other side. But uh, we should note that the Senate didn't become constituted <laughs> with leaders. When did the position actually come around? So it's the beginning of the 20th century. There's some dispute, like everything else with the Senate. It's a little bit ambiguous and a little vague. Um, Democrats and Republicans began electing their caucus chairman in, the, in the, like 1903 and 1911. And those positions um, eventually became the, the floor leader position in the 1920s. Oscar Underwood from Alabama is typically considered to be the first um, Democratic floor leader. And uh, uh, Charles Curtis from Kansas is typically considered to be the first uh, Republican floor leader. Former Majority Leader Robert Byrd called first recognition the most potent weapon in the Majority Leader's arsenal. We've got a clip from uh, Leader McConnell talking about his role and how he can actually set the legislative agenda through that right. Let's watch. So you don't think it's a good idea and you don't think it's something the president would entertain or should entertain? Well, I don't think he should fire Mueller, and I don't think he's going to. So this is a piece of legislation that's not necessary in my judgment. Well, obviously, none of your colleagues fear it enough to say it should be in there as an Yeah, but I'm, I'm the one who decides what we, what we take to the floor. That's right. my responsibility as the majority leader. We'll not be having this on the floor of the Senate. I love this quote. I'm the one who decides what we take to the Senate floor as majority leader. Because it's not true. Under the Senate rules... Any senator can make a motion to proceed to any legislation that's on the Senate calendar. And under the same Senate rules, any senator can put a bill on the Senate calendar without having gone through committee first. So any senator can use the rules at his or her disposal to make a motion to proceed to force his or her colleagues to consider something that he or she wants to consider. And this came up a lot in recent years. And what's fascinating to me about it is the last time And and the majority leader is correct. Um, Senators defer to the leaders to make this decision and to make these motions, and they have been for decades now. But the last time a senator, 
who wasn't the majority leader, made a motion to proceed over the objections of the majority leader and filed cloture on it to force a vote was in 2010. And it was Mitch McConnell. And so it's interesting because he was the minority leader at the time. He wasn't the majority leader at the time. And he demonstrated his ability to use the rules to force action on an issue. But if the Senate really operates on precedent, when did the precedent for the majority leader getting the first right of recognition come Mm -hmm. about? So right of recognition comes from a a precedent in 1937. Alvin Barkley was the majority leader at the time. And you have uh, John Nance Garner, Cactus Jack, my my favorite uh, vice president nickname, is in the chair. And he just decides that he's going to, to grant preferential recognition to the majority leader first and the minority leader second. It's a favor that the chair's doing, giving to the majority leader in this instance, and also, incidentally, the minority leader. It's not something that the Senate can require the chair to do. It's not something the Senate can pass a new rule and force the chair to do. The chair can recognize any senator. It doesn't matter. But it's more of a tradition, if you will, that that they defer to the majority leader. And the senators defer, too, because it makes their lives easier. So why does that that deference give the majority leader so much power? So the majority leader, once you make a motion to proceed, you can effectively set the schedule. And then if, you act, if you're very creative and you, are, and you can come up with innovative ways, you can begin to control the agenda. You can proactively control it by making motions to proceed or offering amendments. And then you can negatively control it and block other senators from doing the same things uh, using priority of recognition. In the Senate, once you um, offer an amendment, you lose the floor. But the majority leader, having priority of recognition, gets the floor right back. The same as the minority leader, so long as the majority leader doesn't want to get recognized, doesn't want to do so as well. And so that is a huge power for them that allows them to act ahead of other senators. Well, we're talking about John, uh, uh, John Nance Garner, uh, Cactus Jack, <laughs> Texan. Uh, he was um, another, another Texan, which uh, was during his time period, was LBJ. Uh, and uh, he was dubbed Master of the Senate by his biographer, Robert Caro. Served when as the majority leader? Lyndon Johnson was the majority leader during the late 50s, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he was minority leader prior to that, um, and he was an assistant leader prior to that as well, but all during the 50s. And he was the master of the Senate, and he was an incredible leader, and he did so much to shape the, the position, the institution that we see and know today. But it's interesting because he was a master of a Senate that was bounded in time. And Johnson couldn't have done, at least I don't believe he could have, the things that he did had he existed in a different era. And I think that's really key to understanding a lot of the dysfunction we have today and understanding why the current approach to managing the institution on both sides of the aisle, incidentally, has been unsuccessful. Well, let's listen to Robert Caro talk about the way that he wielded power in the Mm -hmm. Senate. A lot of rules have been put in to make sure that no senator could lead the Senate. One of Johnson's predecessors, Alvin Barkley of Kentucky, said no one can lead it. He said, I have, no one, I have nothing to promise them. I have nothing to threaten them with. So how was Lyndon Johnson able to run the Senate? Probably the most significant sentence in the book that answers this question is a quote not from me, but from Lyndon Johnson talking about himself. This is Lyndon Johnson talking about himself. It's the epigraph of this book. I do understand power, whatever else may be said about me. I know where to look for it, and I know how to use it. Well, Lyndon Johnson was right in that self-assessment. In this book, he looks for power in places that no one else 
a thought to look for. I have nothing to promise them, that Barclay said. I have nothing to threaten them with. Johnson found things to promise them. He found things to threaten them with. In 1955, when he took over as majority leader, he had a one-vote majority. <laughs> How did he find things to lead the Senate? It's such a fabulous quote, and it's a fabulous, it's a fabulous book. It, not just about Johnson, but also about the Senate, about its history, and also about the, the moment in time in the 1950s. But Johnson was so astute, and this predates his time in the Senate. But when he becomes the assistant leader, he starts to look for different things that he can do. Can I give you information about this committee meeting? Can I know what amendments you're going to offer? And he starts to amass all of this, and he becomes the Senate's almost chief information officer, if you will. He uses his financial ties back in Texas uh, to, to raise money, to then dole out to people who support him. And he slowly starts to insert himself into the center of the kind of, if you imagine, a, 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 the center of a tire. He's in the middle. And all of a sudden, things are going out, and everything radiates through Johnson. And it was very subtle, and it was very nuanced, but it was ultimately the key to creating what we know today and recognize today as Senate leaders, and minority leader and majority leader. When uh, the 1958 elections happened, he increased his majority to 65, mm -hmm. but it's, it's said mm -hmm. that he had a more difficult time leading a, a larger majority than the slim one vote. Why would that be? This this is a key moment in time where we can get a better insight into how Senate leaders work. It's partly personality, but it's also the environment. It's the majority makers, the senators who come in in new classes. It's the issues on the agenda. It's, uh, it's the presidency. And in 1958, you have, um, I believe, 12 liberal Democratic senators from the North come in, and they want to act immediately on a whole host of issues. And they don't want to wait forever to become a committee chairman. And to, because they have these Southerners who have been in their party who have been there, and they're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. They're secure. And so they start to look for other ways. They start agitating. They're like, the system doesn't work for us. And so they may go around the committees and start pushing to go to the floor. And all of a sudden, the power bases on which Johnson relied to master the Senate begin to crumble. They begin to erode. They, they get weaker. And you get a new, uh, more collegial, more open and freewheeling Senate environment that I believe Johnson could not have managed. And if, and if he stuck around, if he was not in the White House as vice president and then as president in the 60s, but instead had stayed in the Senate, I think we would remember him very differently today. His signature issue, even at that time, was civil rights legislation. When he was leading the Senate, why was he not more successful? People don't remember the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Everybody remembers the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And a big part of that is because what they did in the 57 Act wasn't as important as the 64 Act. It wasn't as far-reaching. And it relates to how Johnson tried to get it through the Senate. He wanted to control the institution. He wanted to, to write bills off the floor. He wanted scripted speeches to fill floor time. He wanted to resolve all matters of dispute before a bill hit the floor. And so, naturally, when he gets a bill, everybody's going to be unhappy with it because there's no process to really work through all of these issues. Today, or in 1964, Mansfield, his successor, Mike Mansfield from Montana, his majority leader, has a completely different approach to things. And that approach ultimately aligns with the environment and gives him a better bill in the end. And that's why we typically look at Mansfield and see him as one of the greatest leaders, even though we think of Johnson as master of the Senate. Before we move on to more about Mansfield, uh, when you read Kara's books, you, you see, especially his Senate years, a character named Bobby Baker, mm -hmm. uh, who is secretary of the Senate, that is his aide-de-camp. 
does the Secretary of the Senate position still exist? And how did Johnson use it versus if, how it might be used in later times? It does, although it's, it's much different. Bobby Baker was a, a kid from Pickens, South Carolina, and he comes into the Senate as a page. And he ends up staying in the Senate. And he has all of his formative moments in life in the Senate. He has a wedding reception in the Senate. He marries a Senate, another Senate staffer. And he's there. And he begins to insert himself into the Senate. And Johnson uses that in the information and the friendships and the connections that he gleans from Baker to help manage the institution. And more broadly, though, Johnson had an approach to staff that was very different than a lot of other senators. Johnson had an approach that we would recognize today. One of his predecessors, um, Majority Leader Robinson from Arkansas, would, would had a very loyal, tight-knit staff that he relied on as well. But Johnson takes staff to a whole different level and shows the Senate and, and his colleagues that you can use staff to do really big things. Baker, incidentally, got into a little bit of trouble in the 60s. We can talk about that under Mansfield, potentially, but um, it's in the Senate, Secretary of the Senate position is much more different today than it was then. If you look at personalities, LBJ and Mike Mansfield could not seem more different just looking at, at archival video of the period. Tell me about Mike Mansfield. Mike Mansfield was a very quiet, unassuming man, so far as I can tell. I've, I've never had the, the honor or the privilege to meet him, but from reading about him and watching him uh, speak about the Senate, one of the things that was so remarkable about him was his deep and abiding sense of uh, senatorial equality. He saw the Senate not as a factory, not as a place where senators come in and they clock in, they have a time card and they clock in on their way into the floor every day, but as a place where they go to participate in an activity, where equals go to participate in an activity on behalf of the citizens that they represent. And that really permeates everything about his leadership style, and it informs how he approaches the Senate, and it ultimately leads to one of the most explosive periods in uh, legislative productivity in the nation's history. He served as majority leader from 1961 to 1977, quite a long tenure. His counterparts on the opposite side of the aisle were Everett Dirksen and Hugh Scott. How did he work with them? Everett Dirksen was an interesting uh, leader. He really built on the, the precedents that, that Johnson sets about centralized, uh, more centralized party control. We wouldn't look at it as centralized today, but back then it was. And he, he began to mimic a lot of the things that Johnson did. But Dirksen was also more public. He was more forward-facing, and he's really one of the first precedents we see for a Senate leader of being out in the, in the public PR. And in Mansfield's unassuming style meshes very well with that, incidentally, because it allows for Dirksen to have the spotlight, if you will. And a lot of people say that's one of the reasons why the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ultimately passed, was because Mansfield was able to secure Dirksen's cooperation and was okay with Dirksen being out front and taking credit for a lot of this stuff. Hugh Scott is very interesting because he has this concept of shared leadership. And he, it's a much more decentralized model, and he wants to bring more people in, from the Republican side at least, into the leadership structure. And, but other than that, he's very, um, you don't read a lot about Hugh Scott. There's a Hugh Scott room in the, in the, in the United States Capitol. He's a senator from Pennsylvania. He was, it was a big, important time. But he, he continues a lot of what Dirksen does, but he steps back from the PR side just a little bit and brings more people in. Let's watch Mike Mansfield. Uh, there's a tradition of Senate leaders giving lectures on leadership <laughs> skills and the old Senate chamber. We've covered so many of those. This is from uh, 1998, having him talk about his approach to leadership. By mid-1963, various Democratic senators had begun to express publicly their frustration with the lack of apparent progress in advancing the Kennedy administration's legislative initiatives. 
After all, they reasoned, Democrats in the Senate enjoyed a nearly two-to-one party ratio. With those numbers, anything should be possible under the lash of disciplined leadership. Sixty-five Democrats, 35 Republicans. Think of it, Senator Daschle. (laughs) Of course, I use the word enjoy loosely. Ideological differences within our party seriously undercut that apparent numerical advantage. Had Democrat in the White House for much of the time, Democrat in the House leading the House, and the Democratic Senate. Why would he have problems? What the majority leader is, is reading there is a speech that he intended to deliver to re- respond to criticism of his, of his style and his tenure as majority leader after Johnson left and went to the White House as vice president. And he was going to give it on the Senate floor. And it was the day that the President Kennedy was assassinated. So that naturally that did not occur. And then afterwards he submitted it for the record and he waited something like 35 years or so to actually deliver it. And he delivered it in the old Senate chamber. But he, he's absolutely correct. We think today in terms of this factory model of, of leadership, and we think if you just have more workers, it's great, then you can do more things. And in the Senate, if you can get more than 60, you can overcome filibusters. If you have 65, you can do a lot of stuff. But it's not, that's not the reality of the situation. One, because the parties are very divided. The Senate isn't debating health care today. It's not debating immigration. It's not debating legislation uh, to deal with gun control or gun safety. It's not dealing with these issues precisely because Republicans and Democrats are divided internally on these issues. But what's truly remarkable about that speech, and I would encourage everyone to, to, to read it, and it's a fabulous speech, or you can watch it online, is that he's this, this notion of senatorial equality and what a leader's job is. Mansfield saw his job as something very different than Johnson. His job wasn't to control things. His job wasn't to work out problems before they occur. His job wasn't to make the production line run smooth. Mansfield saw his job as facilitating the participation of interested members in a process. And he had ideas, and he had priorities, and he had goals. But ultimately, his responsibility was to make the Senate work, not to produce widgets, but to debate legislation. And then the widgets would come in the end. Two important issues. We talked about civil rights, but two other important issues. We should talk about Mansfield's leadership briefly. Vietnam, uh, because he disagreed Mm -hmm. with the president's policy. Did he do that publicly, or did he use the Senate to uh, express his concerns? So Mansfield Mansfield doesn't usually use his official positions as leader to kind of push an agenda. You don't see that from Mansfield. And civil rights is another great example where he is a big proponent of civil rights. And he, but he's also terrified that this is going to, to destroy you know, his, his, his party and it's going to tear it apart. And so he, he goes forward, but he doesn't go forward not because he's a proponent. He goes forward because that's the job of the, the Senate. It's to, to debate bills. And he recognizes that he has senators who want to debate those things. And I think Vietnam is a very similar issue as well. It's an issue that was dividing the party on both sides, incidentally. It, it provoked a lot of unrest on the, in, amongst the, the citizenry, and people wanted to see their claims adjudicated. And so eventually the Senate has to acknowledge that. It has to deal with those issues. He also, uh, under his tenure, Watergate happened. Mm-hmm. How did he approach that? It, in, in very much the same way, I think. Um, it, you know, it's not something, if you look at Watergate, 
and you compare it to what happened today and what happens today with regard to impeachment and, um, and, and President Donald Trump and the scandal with the Ukraine, it's, it's remarkable because then there's a notion of this isn't the outcome we want to get to, but more this is our responsibility as senators to participate in this process. And we want to make sure that the process itself is legitimate and as respected as possible. And so you have a lot more bipartisanship. You have, in terms of statements coming from the Senate, the Watergate hearings, the investigations are playing out in the House for an impeachment. And it's, it's much more bipartisan precisely for that reason. Robert Byrd took over as majority leader when Mansfield retired in 1977. We've talked about him mm -hmm. a bit already. Uh, his biggest legislative challenge seems to have been the Panama Canal Treaty vote. How did he approach that? It, the Panama Canal Treaty was a huge debate. A massive debate. It divided, uh, divided the parties, it divided Republicans. Uh, people today don't even think about it, but back then it was seen as an existential type debate. And Robert Byrd gave a speech shortly after uh, Mansfield does in the old Senate chamber where he references it. And that was, his, that was his trying time. And he really, you know, he's a little bit, Mansfield, there is a criticism of Mansfield that the Senate was a little inefficient and unproductive. And Byrd starts to harness uh, legislative procedure and his knowledge of the rules. And he combines it with his kind of principled commitment to an egalitarian Senate that Mansfield has. And he makes the Senate operate more smoothly. And you see that from the Panama Canal debate, he starts to learn. And he starts to learn how to do that. And then into the 80s, that's when you see uh, Byrd, I think, really shine. In 1986, in June, the Senate went on television, something that <laughs> Senator Byrd str strongly supported and encouraged some recalcitrant senators to support. Did it end up costing him his leadership? Some say that he wasn't as telegenic as his successor, uh, um, uh, Majority Leader Mitchell uh, from Maine. But it... I'm, Perhaps I'm not in these uh, I'm not in these deliberations, but I will say that Byrd he resigned abruptly, and maybe and I suppose that's because he probably saw what was happening, or he was asked to kind of pushed out gently, which is how things happen in the Senate. But at the same time, the Senate was changing, and the job of the senator was changing. And Byrd is an old school senator, and he doesn't want to spend all his time fundraising. He doesn't want to spend all his time engaged in these um, kind of partisan attacks on one another. And he wants, and he still sees the Senate as this old forum of, of, of a place where you go to participate in this activity. There's a crucible for conflict, if you will. And I, even if he does want to stay leader, it doesn't look as enticing, I believe. And so he, you know, he steps down and he becomes the chairman of the, the Senate Appropriations Committee. Uh, so S Senator Baker had been the minority Senate minority leader, took over as majority leader, but he had he came from a long political mm -hmm. background. What do we need to know about him? Well, his father-in-law was Everett Dirksen. He was, he was married to his daughter. Uh, his father was a congressman, and he was someone who wanted to be in leadership. He challenged Hugh Scott for the minority leader position um, several times prior to ultimately um, becoming the, the majority leader or the Republican leader at the time. And that's something that's unheard of today. You don't, if you challenge a, a, one of your colleagues who's in leadership, instead of saying, we want more competition to see how this is going to work, and these are my ideas for how the conference could work better or the Senate could work better, back then, that still was also unheard of. And so he challenged, and that I think is a testament to his desire to be in leadership, to really try to live up um, to the, especially his father-in-law and the kind of the, the goals that he set for himself. Well, it's interesting that he was that ambitious, but his nickname was the Great Conciliator. <laughs> so how did he approach leadership? It's interesting because Baker has a, 
he comes in and he's propelled into the majority leader position by a, a class of Republican senators who are generally more conservative. Think Jeremiah Denton from South uh, from uh, Alabama, for instance. And but they're new, and they're freshmen, and they're not ex- have been exposed to this environment before. And Baker really uses that 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 moment to try to centralize control a little bit more over the Senate and over the process. And so he begins to, to treat holds a little bit differently. He begins to, to treat his responsibilities as leader a little bit differently than, say, a bird does, someone who has a more of a, I'm, I'm, I'm working for you, the rank and file. Baker, you begin to see that departure during his tenure. And I think it relates to the fact that he comes in with a bunch of freshmen and he wants to take this opportunity to to kind of exert control over the Congress. Is the 1980 election sort of a fulcrum where we begin to see a real shift in the Republican Party ideology? Yes and no. I think 94 is a big deal, obviously, for the House and the Senate. But in the Senate, it's not necessarily ideology. It's, it's, not, it's not conservative or liberal that, that's breaking the Senate. It's, if, if you think back to Majority Leader um, or former Majority Leader then, uh, Byrd on the floor of the Senate, talking about senators breaking the Senate, it's... Um, it's the fact that they're not using all of the tools that they have. And so I'm not sure that 1980 is the moment in which we would say, well, that's when it starts to go, you know, it starts to shift away from where it used to be. And it's all the fault of ideology because it's there's a there's a there's a change in how senators think about their job and think about the institution. And that change, I think, is unrelated to ideology. We have a clip of Howard Baker, same series of leadership lectures talking about his leadership style. Let's watch. I remember so vividly my first day on the Senate floor after the caucus of this very room elected me majority leader. I walked over to Bob Byrd. I said, Bob, I will never know the precedent and rules of the Senate the way you do. You are truly a man of the Senate, steeped to the traditions of the Senate and the knowledge of its procedures. But I'll make you a deal, I said. I will never surprise you if you won't surprise me. And Bob said, let me think about it. (laughs) And he did think about it. And that afternoon, he came over to me on the Senate floor and just said, all right. Could we envision the minority and majority leaders today having such a deal? I think they do. The Senate doesn't work like it currently is structured if the leaders don't cooperate. And and McConnell and Harry Reid, the former majority leader, cooperated as well. Senate leaders have to cooperate. They've always cooperated because you can really mess things up. And the leader's job is to make things work, not mess things up. And so they work with one another. And this isn't a new thing. If you think back to, say, um, Mike Mansfield in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, at the beginning of that debate, which was in a presidential election year, incidentally, I like to remind people, it's one of the biggest issues of our time, divides the Democratic Party. And the majority leader says we need, he helps to get it going and put it on the floor in an election year, a presidential election year. But he has a meeting with Richard Russell, a senator from Georgia, where they lay out what they think they're going to do. And Russell says, I'm going to try to stop this bill. And he talks to Mansfield about it. And they treat each other with respect. Because when you see the Senate as a place where senators go to to represent their constituents, you begin and you think about them as equals, you don't surprise each other. You may use the rules as leverage when you can. 
And birds certainly use the rules as leverage. And incidentally, um, Baker changes Senate parliamentarians, and it was considered a big deal at the time because a lot of birds, uh, the critiques of Bird from the Republican side of the aisle was that he became too partisan, and he was using the rules in a very partisan way. And maybe he was, but they still cooperate, and they still cooperate to this day. So I want to underscore this point because people have just watched the two leaders through the impeachment process, Mm -hmm. a lot of partisan divide on the floor of the Senate, but your message is that off-camera, behind the scenes, there is cooperation between the two leaders. Correct. They may not get along very well, but they but they are certainly cooperating. They're cooperating on setting the schedule. Even when there are cloture motions that are being filed, the two leaders cooperate on the nomination stuff. They don't like the rank and file to get too into that. They want to set the schedule. When McConnell made a motion to proceed over Reeves' objections, it wasn't that McConnell was excited to do it as minority leader, and he was and he was not going to cooperate with Reid. He didn't want to do it. He was trying to talk the senator who did want to do it out of doing it, and that was Senator Tom Coburn, who wanted to make this motion to proceed. And if you look it up on C-SPAN, you can see that McConnell makes this motion. He immediately leaves the floor, and then Coburn stands up and starts talking. And so the idea is that you have two leaders, and their jobs are to control their conferences and to make the Senate work and to not surprise anyone. And any senator, whether they're liberal or conservative, who goes to the floor and tries to do something all of a sudden, will immediately be told by the leadership staff, by the floor staff, and ultimately by the leader that they can't do that. Because if they do it, it will lead to all of these bad things happening and all of these surprises. And we can't have that. I want to talk next about Bob Dole. Until Mitch McConnell, he is the longest-serving Republican leader, 10 years, 11 months, and 9 days, Mm -hmm. and two stints of that time as majority leader, 84 to 86, 94 to 96. He also began to see um, Republican members of the Senate who had been uh, part of the Gingrich wave in the House Mm -hmm. being elected to the Senate, so a changing body. Talk about his leadership style with that changing body. So Dole was, he, he thought institutionally, he was a conservative, it seems to me, back then at least, and, and he thought, but he thought institutionally, he thought differently about his responsibility. And so all of a sudden the Senate's starting to change, and he has to figure out how to accommodate senators who come in who want to do things. And this isn't a new thing. The progressives, there were progressives from the House who came over to the Senate and started to challenge the old guard leadership as well back in the beginning of the 20th century. This is not a new phenomenon. It ultimately leads to change. It leads to, to dynamism. It leads to innovation. And... Dole tried to work his way through that as best as possible. He, on one hand, he had a bunch of old bull um, chairmen and who were basically controlling the place, more or less, or at least the conference. And then on the other hand, he had a bunch of reformers who wanted to change things immediately. And it's a very difficult thing to navigate. A couple of uh, major pieces of legislation uh, that could have reverberations for many years after passed during his tenure. One was the Graham-Rudman-Hollings balanced mm-hmm. budget bill. Another was the 1986 tax reform bill. And then one, uh, Simpson-Mazzoli, the big immigration reform mm-hmm. bill. Can you talk about those major pieces of legislation and how they got forged? So the Graham-Rudman-Hollings and in Hollings, we typically um, don't mention. He, I think he became a little upset about it at the end, and he, he, you know, I mean, he wasn't really proud of it, but it was, we call it Graham Rudman on the Hill, and it puts limits on, on deficits and it targets, and then they're eventually replaced by spending caps. But that's the beginning of this kind of government by cliff, appropriations by cliff thing that we see. And, and they're, they're forged via, it's, um, it's a very kind of complex procedure, reconciliation, where they're trying to put things in um, and get over filibusters. But they're really written off the floor. 
If you look at the Budget Enforcement Act of 1990, which was the bill to replace and the structure to replace um, the deficit targets, what ultimately happens there is that they, they negotiate this deal off the floor, and they figure out how to then cobble it together, put it on the floor, and pass it. They're still not blocking amendments at this stage, but they're all of a sudden you begin to see in this era things shifting away from the floor, and not necessarily to committees, although with the 86 tax reform bill, that's a great example where you have senators and the finance committee basically say, how can we save this process that doesn't look like it's going to ultimately succeed? And they get involved, and they ultimately end up passing a bill. It may be a good bill, it may be a bad bill, but they still pass a bill. And I think it's very similar to today if you look at the tax reform bill. Majority Leader McConnell says there's nothing Republicans agree on more than tax reform. Well, they barely passed it, one vote. And the only reason they passed it, so far as I can tell, reading the tea leaves and the newspapers off the Hill, is that members like Pat Toomey and Bob Corker on the Finance Committee were working very aggressively, trying to come up with different solutions, talking to their colleagues, going around and bringing people into the process to say, what can we do to make this thing happen? Because that's what lawmaking ultimately takes. Because we only have an hour with you, I'm going to bypass uh, his successor, Trent Lott, and then Democrats Tom mm-hmm. Daschle, a Republican Bill Frist, and move into the current era. Harry Reid, uh, in the Senate starting in 1987 through 2017, he succeeded Tom Daschle. Uh, here, let's start with a clip from him, and then we'll talk about his leadership style. A lot of this job is like any other job. People have to like you. I mean, Matt Williams, who was a manager of the Nationals, wonderful guy, from Nevada, by the way. But uh, the word got out that his players weren't uh, playing as hard for him, didn't respect him, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whether it's true or false, I don't really know. But he got dumped. And being a manager of a baseball team is no different than being manager of a bunch of senators here. if you're not doing a good job, they don't like you, they'll figure out a way to get rid of you. So he led the Senate the last two years of George W. Bush's presidency and six years of President Obama's term. How did he approach his job? In full disclosure, when I worked in the Senate, Reid was the majority leader for, for, that, for most of that time. And it's, he's a very interesting senator, and he's one whom I've changed my, who I've changed my appraisal of over the years as I'm trying to think about it. And... He works, he's the only, let me put it this way, he's the only senator, the only leader that I've ever seen or read about that changed how they did their job midstream. Most leaders just keep doing what they're doing. If Johnson is in the leader in the 60s, he's not going to start leading the Senate like Mike Mansfield. He's going to lead it like Lyndon Johnson, and it wouldn't work. Reed sees that, and he reacts to a growing liberal class of senators starting in 2008 that come into the Senate. And he begins to change how he leads the Senate in response to that, in response to conservative senators forcing issues on the floor that divide his party on things like immigration. And also, he really dislikes um, the president, I believe, at the time. I don't think this is a secret, um, President Bush. And I think a lot of that, really, all of that comes together and informs, ultimately, his decision to to lock down the Senate. But the most important thing about Reed, and I don't know if it comes from his um, prior career as a boxer before he enters public life or what, but he has a sense for the rhythm of the process. He has a sense for the way in which um, legislative compromise emerges out of legislative struggle. And it's not always pretty. And you don't always like it. And he was very, very, very good at getting that. 
very good at getting that. And I think that explains a lot of what we see in the nuclear option 2013, for instance. It explains, I think, a lot of, a lot of what he was able to do that, say, a Mitch McConnell hasn't been able to do. Could you specifically talk about his approach to the 2008 financial crisis? We were transitioning between two presidents mm-hmm. and two parties, and it was an enormous challenge uh, requiring swift legislative response. How did he approach it? So what Reid does, and you see this now this all the time on virtually every bill, is that once you get a bill on the floor, you immediately file cloture. So you to end a filibuster, you then fill the tree using your priority of recognition. And the tree is simply a fancy way of saying all of the allowed amendments that you can have pending on a bill at once. And you wait for that clock to run out. And so Reed would do that once he got a, a, a bill to negotiate with. And he would go after and he would target certain senators. And he would say, well, Olympia Snow, Susan Collins, Arlen Specter, I think you're going to be with me on this. So I'm going to work with you to negotiate a bill. And once we get that bill together and I hold all of my Democrats, then I'm going to use the tools that I have as leader to force that through the Senate. And I'm going to, and if, even if I don't think I have you com- all the way, if I got like 59 and a half votes, then I'm going to put you in a position where it makes it very uncomfortable for you to vote no. Mitch McConnell is going to consume our last eight minutes here. So uh, he called his memoir The Long Game. And unlike a number of the majority leaders we've talked about, has never had presidential ambitions. He is where he wants to be in the United States Senate. How does he approach leadership? I think Mitch McConnell approaches leadership like a factory foreman. He says, my job is to produce widgets. And to do that, I need to control the factory. And to control the factory, I need members. And to get members, I need to win elections which means that I need to raise money and I need to keep issues that divide my party and create a dysfunctional narrative off the agenda, which leads him to clamp down on the factory, which ironically leads to fewer widgets in the end. And I think that's really the secret to our dysfunction that we have today. It's that we are in Mike Mansfield's Senate right now, it seems to me. What, do you, what the, do you mean by that? The issues that divide the parties. There, there are a lot of big, important issues that divide the parties internally. Not between them, but divide Democrats and Democrats and Republicans and Republicans, like immigration, health care, um, gun control, those types of issues. And then you have a leadership that wants to run that Senate in this environment like Lyndon Johnson did. And, it, and, I, and I don't think it can work. And I think case in point, the Senate now is probably its most unproductive that it's ever been in its history. And it's a little bit ironic because the second you have some, someone who truly conceives of their job as, as a factory foreman, if I'm correct, the, the outcome is, is, is you're not getting any widgets. One area where it's been enormously successful is in judicial appointments. Correct. But those judicial appointments are very interesting because most of them are passing with bipartisan support. Right. Most of them are passing with Democrats and Republicans voting for them. You have someone like a Kavanaugh, for instance, uh, for the, Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. Perhaps you get, and there was some bipartisan there, but you, they're largely bipartisan. And this specter, this specter of obstruction, I haven't yet seen it. So Mitch McConnell gave an interview in the 115th Congress, and he said, this is the best Congress I've ever had. And then he simultaneously said, this is the worst historic obstruction I've ever experienced. And those two things don't go together. They don't add up. But, and I think it's the, the reason is there's not historic obstruction. It's both, both parties are deferring to their leaders. Both leaders are negotiating things on judges, which they can agree on on some areas. And then that's what they do. And they keep other issues off the agenda. If you've watched the interplay between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, current Democratic leader, versus Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid, what do you see? I think 
from my perspective, Schumer and McConnell appear to get to get along much better than than Reid and, and McConnell did at the end. Reid was very um, adept, as I said, at using and putting senators in tough situations. And so one of the reasons why we have the nuclear option is that he would threaten it. And then he would get senators like, say, Rob Portman to back down and vote for cloture on the nominee that he threatened the nuclear option on. And he kept doing that over and over again. And then eventually we you know, those senators wouldn't back down. And so ultimately he had to go through with it. And I think that kind of mentality, that kind of hard nosed driving, always wanting to win, no matter what, no matter what I have to do or what I have to say, that's going to grind on you as an, if, if you're having to work with another individual. And I, I think McConnell eventually got tired of that. And I think it, it undermined their relationship. And then simultaneously, McConnell had more and more conservative senators who wanted to do things that he couldn't control, which then created pressure and tension with him, with, with his relationship with Reid. Uh, would you comment on Mitch McConnell's relationship with the current White House? It, I, I, I'm not privy to it. I don't know. Sure, I mean, but it, you watch it yeah. as, as a scholar, and yes. we've talked about other majority leaders mm-hmm. and their relationships uh, with the White House. How does this one seem to function? One of the key reasons why we have a Senate leader position today, like we have, is because the presidency is now aggressive in the legislative sphere. And the leader is expected, in many cases, to to usher that agenda through or to work on behalf of that president. It's not the only thing the leader's supposed to do, but it's one of the main things And that, when that president is of your party. And that's certainly some, a relationship we see continuing with McConnell and Trump. But it, it can go both ways. I think that um, you see that you know McConnell may want to try to push back against some things privately that he doesn't like, while simultaneously you know, going forward on other things that he does like, on, say, like judges, for instance. So, and that's why the Senate only does judges, and it's not really going to deal with other issues. The last three presidents, frustrated with the lack of movement, have increased their use of executive orders. Mm-hmm. What does that really mean in the scheme of how our government's supposed to work? I think it, it illustrates how critical and vital one Congress is, and how critical and vital the Senate is. And if you don't have a Senate that's willing to, to be a crucible of conflict, if you don't have senators who are willing to debate things, then you're not going to get legislative compromise, which means you can't legitimize outcomes, which means the people don't see their claims adjudicated. But yet there's still things that need to happen or people want to have happen. And so they look to the courts and they look to the presidency to make those decisions. And ultimately, though, the courts and the presidency can't legitimize their own decisions. They need Congress. They need politics. And for that to happen, you have to have a Senate that can serve as the Senate. And until the Senate does that, it, you know, we focus on the presidency and executive orders, but this trend's going to continue until the Senate decides that it wants to start legislating. Well, let's close with a prescription, because at the outset, you suggested that it's the individual senators mm-hmm. uh, who really bear responsibility for a dysfunctional Senate. And yet, at the same point, we've got a majority leader who you see is very focused on a legislative agenda. Uh, so how does this situation resolve itself to a more functional Senate? Well, a more functional Senate in this environment, and it doesn't always look the same, but in this environment, a more functional Senate may be more chaotic, more messy, more conflict. But ultimately, that's what you need. You need more senators who want to win, who come to Washington, who join, who become Democrats or Republicans, and they arrive in the Senate on day one, and they look around and they say, what tools do I have to win? And then they go about trying to leverage those tools to win. And today, what's remarkable is that neither party appears to want to win inside the Senate. Neither party appears to want to pass legislation. 
you don't have senators who are ostensibly very liberal or very conservative saying, I can use all of these tools at my disposal, but yet they don't use them. And that's interesting because polarization should induce them to act. And right now they're not acting. And that gets back to how my original kind of prescription, which is the reason why the Senate's broken is because senators aren't thinking about the Senate like they once did. And until they do, it's going to continue to be broken. But all we need are new senators or existing senators to just wake up one morning and say, I want to win, and then go about trying to do so. And they may lose, but in the end, it doesn't matter whether they win or lose, incidentally. It's the process that matters. And out of that comes outcomes. And out of that, the system works. James Walner, a student of the Congress, uh, someone who's spent your career in and then studying and teaching about the Senate. Thank you so much for an interesting hour. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.